from Gethsemane to Golgotha, from the garden to the grave. The Spirit illuminates what we've already talked about, seven points of divine authority in the Gospel of John. And, and I wanna stay with those. We're only gonna get to, I think, one more point of authority tonight. But this is authority in this 24-hour period by which we see Jesus navigating and, and orchestrating everything that's taking place. He's the one in charge. And, and as you approach these verses one by one, you start to realize, wow, Jesus is the one. It, it culminates in this decisive sacrifice that he accepted, that was part of the plan from before the foundation of the world. And so we already talked about, but just to remind you, John 18 verses four through 11, we saw his commanding authority there in the garden. It wasn't the, the cohort, it wasn't the Roman commander in charge, it certainly wasn't the chief priest. Jesus was in full command of the situation, controlling the, the dicey circumstances of his arrest, keeping it from blowing up in the garden. He controlled it, commanding authority. And then verses 12 through 24, the next part of that chapter, priestly authority. As he's taken to Annas, the former high priest, but still respected as the high priest by most of that time, taken before Annas, and Annas begins to question him, and then Jesus just turns it right around, and you start to wonder, who's the high priest here? Obviously, it was Jesus with priestly composure, high priestly authority. And then, in verses 31 and 32, we recognize prophetic authority as Jesus declared the very manner of his own death. Not only did the Hebrew prophets declare the piercing of Jesus, the crucifixion, but Jesus himself said, this is how I'm going to die. This is how it's gonna go down. And then in John 18, verses 33 and 34, we got to the fourth point of authority, what we call governing authority, as Jesus literally governs Pontius Pilate as their conversation. Now, he continues to govern the conversation as it goes forward with Pilate, but at that time, we just see Jesus is the one asking the questions. Jesus is the one turning it around. Jesus is trying to save Pilate, as it were, while Pilate's trying to condemn Jesus. It's remarkable, the governing authority. Now, again, we're gonna cover one more point tonight. We'll get to it in a minute. But as we move toward the next point of authority, recognize there is a stark contrast here between the gentleness of divine authority and the severity of earthly cruelty. Verse one, chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And this was remarkably cruel. These Roman punishments were not meant to be a slap on the hand and, and send you home without lunch. I mean, this was serious business. If you know anything about this, you know that scourging was done with what's called a flagellum. The flagellum was a, a multi-strapped leather whip, and usually at the end of each strap were chunks of bone or glass or metal, sharp chunks, and they would lash the flagellum across the back and shoulders, and then they would drag it over the flesh mutilating skin, snapping sinew and muscle. Often it would go down to the bone. This was a horrible, horrible, uh, brutal punishment of the Romans. And in verse two, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, hail king of the Jews and give him slaps in the face. 
Where did they come up with the idea? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? A crown of thorns? What kind of sick person would come up? Hey, let's, let's twist together some thorns and stick it on his head and call him a king. And the thing was, it was a game. It was a game to the soldiers. It was called the Game of Kings, the Basilinda. The Basilinda was an actual game that the guards of the Roman soldiers would play with whatever condemned man they had before them. In fact, the game of kings or the game of the king was to the face and to the countenance what scourging was to the back. It was all about demeaning and humiliating and roughing up a prisoner. Here's how it worked. The prisoner was given a robe, as we see with Jesus. And then they gave him a makeshift crown. In this case, it was a crown of thorns. It could be any kind of crown that they could get their hands on. But with Jesus, it was a crown of thorns. And they gave him a scepter of some kind, a reed or a stick. And then the soldiers began to bow down and pay homage to him. As we see here, hail, king of the Jews. And then as they stood up, they would just slap him across the face hard as they could. They took uh, sheep's knuckles dice and they rolled them on the stone floor over carvings, and they did this to gamble over this so-called king's possessions. Now, if he had no possessions, they just pretended that he did. They made up stuff, and they would gamble over the pretended possessions, and then the winner of the game of kings earned the right to symbolically kill the king. This was their game. There's an ancient archway in Jerusalem some of you stood beneath it recently. We will stand beneath it again. You come with us next May. I'll show this to you. It was built in 135 AD by Hadrian. It's called Hadrian's Arch. And a church then ultimately was built over that location once it was excavated and discovered in 1856. And this church sits now at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount over the ruins of what we've talked about recently, what was called the Fortress of Antonia. Fortress of Antonia. The Bible calls it the Praetorium. We recognize it as, as Roman HQ, Pilate's Hall of Judgment. Pilate didn't stay there. He had quarters there. He tended to stay in Caesarea Maritima, much nicer up by the cool sea. But he would come down for the high holidays, such as Passover, and stay there at the Praetorium. And there were a number of Roman soldiers that were stayed there. Not all of them. It wasn't, it wasn't a full battalion barracks, but there were some there for the soldiers to be there as well. And etched in the stone floor, the 2,000-year-old stone floor, remained the markings of the game of kings, and you can see it. It was one of the most stirring things that I saw first time I was in the land to see there it is. That's the game they were playing. This kind of a circular etching and then there are little marks in it, little Roman numerals and, and they would roll the dice over these and whatever, however the dice landed, that's how they would play this really sick game. How ironic that these Roman soldiers are playing the game completely unaware that this man was and is and will forever be the king of kings. That's the source of the crown of thorns, the robe that's on Jesus. They're playing a game with the king of kings. Verse four, Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, 
Behold the man. By the way, Hadrian's Arch goes by another name, a name that was given to it after the fact, Ecce Omo. And Ecce Omo, the Latin means behold the man. They call it the Behold the Man Arch because the man stood there draped in purple, dripping blood from his brow. By the way, the crown of thorns, it was woven either from date palm branches or perhaps from acacia branches, the desert acacia. Those are both very common in the land and both have uh, radiating spikes, radiating thorns that, that come out of the branches and the branches are bendable, so, so crafting a crown of thorns would, would not be difficult to do. And you know what's interesting to me? Those branches are marked by the son, by the son Adam, the first Adam. They're marked by his sin. Genesis 3:17, cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And the crown of thorns could not have been twisted together, but for the curse of sin. There would be no thorns. But when sin entered the world, part of the curse was thorns and thistles. And so thorns would begin to grow on acacia trees, on desert palms. And suddenly now you have this ability to craft a crown of thorns. The Lord had to know that with the curse, thorns would one day be driven right into his brow. That he would take the curse to break the curse of sin for us. But, but what is Pilate doing here? He, he says, behold the man. What's he doing? He's trying to release Jesus. If you've read the story, you recognize that Pilate, he, he's not a good guy, but he's not the betrayer either. He's a government official who could really care less about the Jews. He's a, he's, he's a ladder-climbing Roman. He got this assignment in Judea, which he shouldn't have gotten, by the way, because he, he was not of the right blood to get it. It was given to him as a favor Besides the fact Judea was a faraway place from Rome and kind of a, a hotbed of, of, of a pain for the emperor. So he said, yeah, let's send Pilate over there. We'll give him that. And so here's Pilate, and he's not connected to Jesus. He has no reason to release Jesus, except for the fact that he says over and over, I find no guilt in him. How can I condemn this man to death when there's no reason to condemn him? And he really doesn't want to do the Jews any favors anyway, so he's trying to release him. And it's apparent that he thinks if he can make Jesus into a poor, pathetic figure, that maybe they'll have some compassion. Maybe that will appease their bloodlust. If they see that he's already bleeding, that he's already beaten up a bit, and looks like a fool in this purple robe and this, crowny, this thorny crown, maybe that will assuage their hostility. Isaiah 52, verse 14 tells us that his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And you might think, okay, but comparing even the worst of the beatings and, and the, the flagellum and the crucifixion of Jesus, I mean, people have been, in 6,000 years of Western civilization, people have been pretty brutalized. I mean, you know, beaten unrecognizable, but he was marred more than any man. How is that possible that Jesus was marred more than any man? Well, when you come from glory, the distance from his visage in heaven to his face there, standing under Hadrian's arch, 
which actually wasn't even there yet because it wasn't built to 135. So standing on that pavement, the distance is huge. No wonder he was marred more than any of the sons of man. And by the way, side note on this, you know the devil is still trying to mar his appearance. The devil is doing everything he can to brutalize and mar the appearance of Jesus, not like Pilate to release him, but to try to overthrow his church. That's what he wants to do. Steal, kill, and destroy, right? That's, that's his MO. That's what Satan does. And right now, he is working overtime to attempt to make the body of Christ appear one of two ways. Either to appear weak and ineffectual, inviting sin in, having no standard of holiness, no righteousness as per the Bible. Whatever goes, it's all fine. However you wanna live, just come and we'll hang out together. Weak, ineffectual, useless, basically. That's one option that, this, that Satan has been trying to undermine the church with. The other one, and it concerns me greatly now, and that is what you could call a Christian nationalistic threat. Or, or you may start to see this a lot in the news because especially the anti-Christian news is gonna be talking about Christian nationalism. And I struggle with this because I am both a patriot and a Christian. I am. I want this country to be great. I want America to, to flourish. I want us to be the moral standard in the world so long as the standard is where we came from, the Judeo-Christian ethic and value that was so obvious in our founding. But there's a problem. There are those out there. In fact, I should just read this to you. You're not gonna like it, but that's okay. In World Israel News, the headline is Jews Not Welcome. And then it goes on to say, and, and you know, for the, for the, this may come from a left-leaning position just trying to make Christians look bad, but, but understand that this, this is out there. Um, a consultant for a Republican candidate said in a live stream video that the United States is, quote, an explicitly Christian country and conservatives belong to an explicitly Christian movement, the Jerusalem Post reported that on Tuesday evening. And at first I'm like, okay, well, I, I, like, I, I like the idea of us being a country based on the values and the standards of Jesus. I, I'm good with that. But then it goes on and says, Andrew Torba, CEO of social media network Gab, which is reportedly favored by the far right, is a consultant for Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate of gover for governor of Pennsylvania. Okay, so at this point I'm still going, all right, Big deal. According to the Post, Torba claimed that many other candidates had been running ads on Gab, but he did not name anyone. He says, quote, this is the most important election of the 2022 midterms because Doug, this candidate, is an outspoken Christian. Now he says that, and I'm like, okay, I, I'm good with that. I'm good with an elect, electing a Christian. And then he says, we are going to build a coalition of Christian nationalists, of Christians, of Christian candidates at the state, local, and federal levels. We're going to take this country back for the glory of God. And I start to get uncomfortable. And the only reason I start to get uncomfortable is any time you take the church and the state and try to marry them, you have Pergamos in Revelation chapter two, the city of Pergamos, which means objectionable marriage. You don't want to marry the two because 
trust me, the state is inherently not Christian. But let me read on. He says, my policy is not to conduct interviews with reporters who aren't Christian or with outlets who aren't Christian. And Doug has a very similar media strategy where he does not do interviews with these people. He does not talk with these people. He does not give press access to these people. And I read that and I thought, well, wait a minute. These people are the very people we want to save. I was these people once. Many of you were these people. Non-believers, non-Christians. But if we as Christians are like, we won't have anything to do with them, you might say, okay, relax, Rick. It, it, you, you're just, you're not getting it. Well, let me read a little further because you're not upset yet. <laughs> and then he says, quote, these people, non-Christians, are dishonest, they're liars, they're a den of vipers, and they want to destroy you. My typical conversation with them when they email me is, repent and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I take it as an opportunity to try and convert them. Have you ever tried that with a non-believing friend? Have you ever gone to a non-Christian and said, listen, you are one messed up sinner and you need to repent. Let me know when you're ready. I mean, does that work? I mean, maybe, maybe in the rare instance. And then he goes on to say, uh, oh, you're gonna love this. Regarding non-Christian, actually Jewish conservative commentators like Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin, he said this, these people aren't conservative. They're not Christian. They don't share our values. They have inverted values from us as Christians. So don't fall for the bait of populism. Don't fall for the bait of this pseudo-conservatism, big tent nonsense. This is a Christian movement. This movement needs to be centered on the gospel and the truth of God's word and of Jesus Christ. Now see, that I don't have a problem with, but he goes on and says, this is the only way it's gonna work. We don't want people who are atheists. We don't want people who are Jewish. We don't want people who are, you know, non-believers, agnostic, whatever. This is a Christian movement. That's Christian nationalism. And I have a huge problem with that. And I told you before I even started reading that, I am a Christian and I am a patriot and I love America and I want what's right for America. And I'll tell you right now, as a political, politically speaking, I'm conservative. But the love of Jesus, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It is not convert or die which is the attitude that, that is coming out. And, and it comes from what we've talked about before called kingdom now theology, dominionism, that says we are going to create the kingdom on earth. We're gonna develop it, we're gonna prepare it, we're gonna conquer the world for Jesus, and then he'll come back and we'll hand it to him as a gift. As if, as if we had that ability. So I see the devil brutalizing the body of Christ on the one hand, kicking the doors wide open to any kind of immorality, anything, regardless of whether the Bible addresses it or not, just, hey, come on in. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change. You don't have to, you know, accept God's standards. Ineffectual Christianity, and then over here on the other side, this Christian nationalism that says we're gonna stick it to the non-believer. And I look at that, I'm, and I'm just being really honest with y'all. I'm way off note, okay? But I look at that and I, and I think, how do I as a Christian who loves Jesus and loves my fellow humans and wants my fellow humans to be saved, how do I manage in this world when I've got these two perceptions out there and they are being driven by the devil? 
He is pushing this stuff, whether even a lot of it is legitimate. Some of it is on the, on the one side and some of it is on the other side. Most of us as Christians really do love people. I, I know most of you do, <laughs> all of you. We love people. We want to see the gospel go forth. We want to see people saved. That is our entire mission. And yet, the devil's working really hard to brutalize the body of Christ. So how do we deal? Because I can get discouraged. Maybe you can too. How do we stand up and stand against the deceit that is coming from both directions against the church in these last days? And I immediately go back to the very first time the word church is used in the New Testament when Jesus said, Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So first of all, I go, great, Jesus, you can build it because I can't. I'm no church builder, he is. But he says, and this is the key to us, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon what rock? Upon faith that he is the Christ. That's what's going on in that scenario, in that situation at Caesarea Philippi. Peter has just declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But you didn't figure this one out on your own. My father told you this, and he goes on to say, upon this rock, which is the rock of the faith that Peter just declared, faith that Jesus is the Christ, on this rock, the church is gonna grow. The church will be built. I will build it. And so our part in this is to keep our eyes on the rock to keep our faith in Jesus. When we get discouraged by some nationalistic fervor that is not godly, when we get discouraged by just the open door policy of, of anything goes, we stop looking at either one and we look to Jesus and we put our faith in him because that is how he will build his church. And when I talk to people about Jesus, I don't go up and say, you're a mess and you better repent or you're going to hell. I say, you know what? You need to know a guy named Jesus. He really loves you. He can change your life and save you for all eternity. That's a completely different thing. And from the other perspective, but you know what? Jesus knows what is damaging to you. Jesus knows lifestyles and sin behaviors are, are bad because they hurt you. And it's, it's a different approach when my faith is in Jesus. Colossians 1.18 says he is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And listen to me, the head that took the crown of thorns rose victorious. So I ask you, in the words of Paul tonight, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? The, the World Israel News article? Some media outlet trying to denigrate the church? You know, with, with Satan in the background? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He goes on to say, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So while we're praying to him saying, Lord, how? He's already praying for us to deal with how? Yeah, he intercedes for us. Who will, what will, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, you could add, or bad press? 
just as it's written for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, so taking a beating every now and then, whether it's by words or by attitudes or by negativity in the world, I guess that's part of the deal. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how we stand in these last days. And that's how we avoid being discouraged by things that are being said in either direction. We just keep our eyes on Jesus. We have faith in Jesus. We share Jesus. We present Jesus to a lost world. Back to Pilate. Three times here in chapter 18 and 19, the two chapters, three times he says, I find no guilt in him. Back in verse 38 of the previous chapter, in verse four, in verse six of chapter 19, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. He comes, come, keeps coming out. I find no guilt in him. So when he now says, behold the man, again, he's trying to present a pathetic, beaten up, beaten down, humiliated Jesus. Instead, when he says, behold the man, he is just fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah chapter six, verse 12. Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Who rules on a throne? A king, right? He's gonna rule on his throne, therefore he will be a king. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices, that is, of priest and of king, which was unheard of. In fact, it was forbidden in Jewish law. You, didn't, you couldn't be a priest and a king. You could be a priest and a prophet. You could be a king and a prophet. But you couldn't be a king and a priest simultaneously. And when the king tried to act like a priest, it was bad news. Jesus alone, behold the man, the perfect man, priest and king and, and prophet who will sit on the throne that he himself will build in that new temple. John 19, verse six. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for again, I find no guilt in him. Well, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be God, the son of God. Same thing, by the way, in, in Hebrew thinking, the son of God and God is the same thing. You need to understand that. When they say he made himself out to be the son of God, that is blasphemy because to be the son of God from, again, the Hebrew perspective is to be God, to have the same authority as God himself. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid. We start to realize behind the scenes, Pilate is trembling in his toga. He's shaking here. 
This is over his head. This is way above his pay grade. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Interesting question, but Jesus gave him no answer. So the chief priests here, they betray the real reason that they want Jesus dead, that he claimed to be God. We've been seeing this throughout the entire Gospel of John. So now even his enemies are bearing up this fact that Jesus claimed to be God, that Jesus claimed divinity. And so suddenly Pilate's hearing all this and he's putting it together and he's starting to realize this is a bigger deal than he thought. This isn't just some pathetic little rabbi who's in trouble with his people. Suddenly now this is a big deal and he's trembling and he's fearful and right about this time something else happens that makes it worse. <laughs> it doesn't help ease his alarm. Matthew 27, 19 tells us, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. History tells us that Pilate's wife went on to be a follower of Jesus. Pilate himself ultimately committed suicide. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin, commanding authority, priestly authority, prophetic authority, governing authority, and now, number five, the heavenly authority. The heavenly authority. Pilate had no authority here that was not God-given, and note that no governor, no king, no ruler, no president, no potentate ever does. We gotta square this in our understanding of God and our theology but if someone is, is in a position of power, it's because God determined that person needs to be in that position of power. For God's purposes, for his rule and his authority, but no one governs, but that they govern by the authority first of God. Daniel 2.21 says, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So the final authority well, it comes down from heaven. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians chapter one, where am I there? Ephesians chapter one, I didn't mark that. Verse 17, Paul says, I pray the eyes of your heart, verse 18, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above, far above, listen to this, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Pilate didn't know what he was doing, but Pilate was serving under the authority of God. God placed Pilate into this role at that time, and he was clueless. 
And Jesus sets him right when he says, Pilate, you wouldn't have this authority unless it had been given to you from above. And he goes on to say, the greater sin belongs to another. You know what that implies? Pilate, you've been given this authority and you're about to sin. Pilate was going to sin in his decision and in his behavior, he does sin in this process against holy God who established him as governor there in Jerusalem. But there's one who sinned greater. See, Pilate was clueless. And, and Pilate didn't know that he was under the authority of heaven. On the other hand, Judas knew exactly what he was doing. Judas was under the usurpation of Satan. Judas has the greater sin because he rejected the authority of heaven and instead received and accepted for himself the lawlessness of the devil. Those are the two choices. But both Pilate and Judas had a hand in his death. They both worked in it. And let me just tell you, so did you. And so did I. And there's not a human being alive who wasn't aiding and abetting the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And that's the deal. It was my sin that did it. It was Pilate's sin that did it. It was Judas' sin that did it. Judas had the greater sin because he aligned himself with the enemy. But it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And to hear him say, forgive them from the cross, that means everything. By the way, it makes it a whole lot easier for me to forgive others when I know how I've been forgiven. I wanna repeat this verse to you. We've read it a few times recently. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And I, I'm not sorry to harp on this. I'm gonna harp on it one more time. If you're having trouble forgiving anyone, you need to stop and think, how did God in Christ forgive you? When I remember that, I can forgive anything, anything, because there's nothing worse that's been done to me that, than what was done to Jesus, who said from the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And so we are called to forgive in that same way. John 19, verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Oh, so the chief priests are now friends of Caesar's? They are aligning here, my friends. They are aligning with the very government that they so hated against the Messiah who was there to save them. It's just stunning how blind they are. James chapter four, verse four says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you just see it play out here in, among the chief priests. They are making themselves an enemy of God himself by choosing allegiance to Caesar. Choose your allegiance. We all have to make the choice. 
Now let's put these two things together. We just talked a minute ago about, about earthly authority. And it's true that no earthly authority exists without the will of God. But then on the other hand, we have to choose our allegiance. So are we, am I not to be or am I to be in subjection to the governing authorities, Romans 13. 1 Peter chapter two. Am I supposed to bow to the whims and the will of the government? And we've been through the crucible on this, haven't we? Through the whole COVID season. All of us in our own personal lives as a church fellowship and our work lives trying to figure out, how am I, what am I supposed to do here, Lord? Just do whatever the government tells me to do? Or defy? And which is right? And, and I, I'll tell you what, that, that took me months to figure out. Choose your allegiance. Listen, while it's true that no authority on earth exists without the will of God, that he has placed the governing authorities, whoever they are, in position, that doesn't mean that we bow to an earthly authority that defies the divine authority. And that's, that's the issue. We have to look at scripture. We have to look at what we're being asked to do as Christians in this world, whatever country you might live in, we have to look at the situation and say, okay, is obeying the governing authority in this case a defiance of the word of God? Because if it is, I have to serve him. I have to serve the divine authority. And where there is a command to me to follow, I gotta follow that. We bow first to the holy God, verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, that is, everyone who opposes, who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar, well then, Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gavata. The pavement, or Gavata. Why does John point out the Hebrew word here? I mean, honestly, it's kind of like saying, Gabata, pavement, concrete, asphalt, who cares? He brought Jesus out to this place. There's a reason he says this, and I gotta get technical for just a moment, so bear with me here. The word pavement here in the Greek is lithostratos, the lithostratos. In, in Hebrew Aramaic, what you see here where he says in Hebrew, gabata, well, that word Hebrew is actually Hebraisti. So it's not exactly ancient Hebrew. Hebraisti is Hebrew Aramaic. So it was the Hebrew spoken in the first century, which is not the same necessarily word for word as the Hebrew spoken in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. Some of the words had changed. There was Aramaic influence on the Hebrew language. So you've got the lithostratos in Greek, the pavement. You have gavata, which is the Hebrew Aramaic for pavement. But if you look back at the original Hebrew word for pavement, it's martsepet. So lithostratos, gavata, martsepet all mean the same thing. They all mean pavement. They all mean literally an elevation seat. A pavement of elevation. Now, the word pavement, and the reason why I think he points out gavata here, the word pavement is only used two times in the entire Bible. It's used right here in the New Testament, and it's used one time in Hebrew in the Old Testament, just one time. Pavement. 
I want to show you where. If you want to turn to your Bibles, you can look or you can just listen, but it's 2 Kings 16. So you want to turn back to 2 Kings 16. Pavement, Pilate comes out, brings Jesus out to the pavement, the Gabbatha, the Lithostratos, or the Marzipet in 2 Kings 16. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you of something. The Holy Spirit doesn't do coincidences. One word in the Jewish scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, one word in the New Testament, same word. Why is it used and why is it called out? There's got to be a connection, and there is. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 10. Now, King Ahaz, who, by the way, was preceded by three really good kings in Judah, Ahaz was, was a dud. This guy was an evil king. King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I like to call him Tigger. So he went to meet Tigger, and he saw the altar, which was at Damascus. What had just happened was the Assyrians had just destroyed the Arameans and had taken Damascus. So now, as a vassal state, King Ahaz goes over to Damascus to kind of, you know, bow before the king of Assyria, Tigger, and, and pay homage to him. And he goes over there. That's what's happening. And as he does so, verse 10, he saw the altar, which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship, this is not divine workmanship. This is pagan workmanship. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus, Uriah the, the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. And then the king approached the altar and went up to it and burned his burnt offering and his meal offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Wait a minute, that's the job of the priest. What's the king doing? He's usurping the priest. He's violating Torah law. Verse 14, the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house and between his altar and the house of the Lord and he put it on the north side of his altar. So the bronze altar, God's altar, the one that God had designed and, and said to set up in the temple, he, he brings it out. He sets it to the side, you know, just in case he might need it. People do that. They set aside faith. They set aside church. They set aside Christianity, but they keep it close just in case they might ultimately need it again. And King Ahaz, verse 15, commanded Uriah the priest saying, upon the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meal offering and the king's burnt offering and his meal offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all the burnt the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by so we're going to set that aside I'll keep it for myself ultimately if I need to but I want you to use my new altar the one I got from the designs from Damascus okay you with me here so Uriah the priest did according to all the king Ahaz commanded. Watch this, verse 17. Then king Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the laver from them. That's the bronze laver called the bronze sea that they would wash in before the, in the temple court. And he also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement of stone. A pavement of stone. Okay, 
Pilate brings Jesus out to the pavement, the lithostratus, the Gabbatha. Now Ahaz is changing up the courtyard there of the temple. He, he puts the, the bronze laver on the pavement. What's the connection there? Well, again, it's the same word, only used two times in the entire Bible. Ahaz is remodeling the temple court with a pagan pavement to look like Tiglath Pileser's. Why is he doing this? I think because he was a real Tiglath pleaser. See, pleaser, he's pleasing. She's a Tiglath pleaser. Wow. Point is, here you go. Here's the point. Ahaz and Pilate both are giving in to apostasy. What we're seeing here, they're giving in to apostasy where? At the pavement. The pavement is just a connection point between the two stories, but what we see in the two stories is stunning because they are the reverse. That is, in the one with Ahaz, a Jewish ruler was being swayed by a Gentile pagan. Here, with, with Pilate, a Gentile pagan is being swayed by Jewish leaders who are in rejection of their own Messiah. And in both instances, this is an offense before the Lord. In both instances, godly divine authority is being overthrown for not human authority, but satanic authority. In the rejection of God's standard with King Ahaz and of God's Messiah here with Pilate. And so the two are connected here. Listen, if my faith, if my faith is not formed around the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he says, it will eventually conform to the lies of the enemy. Ahaz was conforming to the pagan nations around. He was going the direction of the devil, conforming because he was not conforming to the law of God, because he was not following the truth of God's word. And that's, that's what happens. That's what happens to you and to me, and it's what happens to people in this world. If we choose Jesus, then we will conform to Jesus and his word and his standards and his righteousness. That's, that's what I have to go by. If I don't conform to Jesus, I will conform to the enemy. Remember I told you about those two different attitudes that are kind of on two wings of the church, ineffectual and commandeering, commanding? Both are in trouble because neither one is conforming to Jesus Christ. And if I don't conform to him, I will conform ultimately to the devil. And that's the warning before us. And Pilate right here, he is just completely overwhelmed. Completely overwhelmed. Do you remember what Jesus said? John chapter eight, verse 43, he said, why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. And he's talking perhaps even to some of these same chief priests and Jewish leaders. He says, you're of your father, the devil. That's harsh, <laughs> but it was absolutely true because they weren't listening to him. And if you're not gonna listen to him, you're gonna listen to the devil. He says, you're of your father, the devil. You do not, and you want to do the desires of your father. John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Listen, why is it that people reject the truth of Jesus? Because they are fashioning their faith around the enemy. 
That's what Ahaz was doing. It's what the Jewish leaders are now doing. And Pilate is caught up in this. Even as the, the high priest, Uriah at the time, was caught up in this. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. You know, in that moment, it's like they were suddenly thrust right back to the days of the judges, the days where there was no king in Israel. We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Who is your king? That's the question of, of the section. As we're talking about the heavenly authority of Jesus, someone is texting me, and that is so annoying. I am right now in the middle of teaching. Don't text me. Excuse me just a minute. We got time. I'm not going as long tonight as I was planning on. All right. Hang on. Hang on. Sound off. Sleep. Do not disturb. Done. All right. I'm back. How you doing? You with me? All right. Who is your king is the question. Who is your king? This, don't take this superficially. This could be such an easy question just to slip right on by. Who's your authority? Where's your standard for truth? Where is our standard? Who is our king? That's the question that's being asked. Behold your king. Is he? Is he my king? Is he our king as followers of Jesus Christ? Is he the king? If so, his word stands. And I keep coming back to that because, again, it is stunning to me how many Christians right now are abdicating the word of God because it's easier that way. Because, well, the, the, God's word is here, but culture's over here. So you're gonna do what Pilate is doing with the Jewish leaders. You're gonna cave in, gonna cave to the culture, or are we gonna cling to the truth of God's word? Now, you might ask a question here, and that is, didn't Jesus already eat Passover with the apostles? There's a timing problem because verse 14 says it was the day of preparation for the Passover, but I thought they had the Passover meal the night before. And there are people who will take things like this and go, ah, see, there's that problem with the Bible. There's, there's your contradiction. Listen, let's clear this up. Timing-wise right now, it is the sixth hour. So John is using Roman time. Roman time begins at midnight and the sixth hour will be 6 a.m., so it's six o'clock in the morning and it is now, quote unquote, the day of preparation. The day of preparation is the day that the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple primarily. And that evening on the day of preparation, the Jerusalem Jews at Passover, they ate the Passover meal. But according to Josephus and the Jewish Mishnah, Galilean Jews and Jews outside of Jerusalem in other areas, specifically Galilean Jews, they actually started their day at sunrise, which is unusual because the scriptures, the Jewish day starts in the evening, right? Goes evening to evening. Galilean Jews started it in the morning. They were fishermen. Of course they would. 
So their day started at sunrise and went all the way through. And so it was agreed that they could celebrate Passover on the night before the day of preparation. In Jerusalem, the Orthodox Jews of Jerusalem, they celebrated it on the day of preparation that afternoon. What's interesting is if it was the evening before when Jesus celebrated with the apostles, it would still be technically Nisan the 14th because it starts in the evening, right? But it runs then to the next evening. So as long as it's sometime, John even writes, between the two twilights. Remember that phrase, we'll come back to it later, not tonight. Between the two twilights, between one evening to the next, Jesus had Passover the evening before. And then Jesus became Passover on the day of preparation. It's unbelievably stunning how God worked it out that Jesus celebrated and became the Passover. Legitimately both times. That's how it works. And and by the way, in Jerusalem, because so many Jews came into Jerusalem for Passover, part of the reason they were okay with this, and Josephus tells us, is they did it in two shifts. Because if they tried to kill all of the Passover lambs on one afternoon, it was overwhelming. So they figured, well, we could kill those of the those coming from the north, the Galilean Jews coming from outside the city, they come in, we can kill the lambs on the day before, and they can have their Passover that evening, and then the rest of the lambs will kill on the day of preparation, and we'll have our Jerusalem Passover on that day. Are you with me? You get that? So that's the timing here of how this takes place. And it's important because at the same exact moment that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, Jesus was on the cross. When it says, he handed him over to them to be crucified. Which is why Paul said correctly, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Now, In this interim, as he's handing them over, Luke gets further into Pilate's mindset even than John tells us. He says in Luke 23, 33, they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices prevailed. In other words, Pilate, who wanted to release Jesus, who didn't see any offense or fault in him, who said he's innocent, Pilate handed him over under peer pressure crowd pressure. Not exactly peers, because they weren't peers. They hated each other. But the pressure from the crowd was so heavy on Pilate, he caved in. Take him. And he hands him over to be crucified. Now, you remember in the other Gospels, he says, I wash my hands of this. And he ceremonially took out a towel and and water and dipped his hands in the basin and dried him off. Says, "This this is not of me. Well, he handed him over. Judas had the greater sin, but Pilate was still wrong in what he was doing. Just note this, and I did say this recently, but I wanna underscore it, that pressure from from your peers or from the crowd does not ease up as you get older. I I hoped it would when I was a teenager. I thought, I hate this peer pressure stuff. Can't wait till I'm an adult. It's just as bad, if not worse. And it is the prime reason for bad decisions at any age. Pressure from around you. Doing things that you wouldn't do, you do anyway because those around you are saying, oh, come on, it's not that big a deal. Pilate caved. I ask you the question again, who is your king? To what authority do we surrender? Paul said in Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant 
of Christ. Verse 17, they took Jesus. Therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross. Now, Jesus would have been bearing what's called the patibulum, which was the cross piece to which his hands would be nailed. The cross piece was set or attached and fixed into the cross beam. So the patibulum, which still was incredibly heavy, that was put on Jesus' shoulders. That's what he's now dragging. When we've seen the movies and the, the depictions of him dragging an entire cross, you know, that, that wasn't the deal. It was that patibulum. But he was still worn out, brutalized. His back was hamburger. His head is bleeding. He's in horrible shape. And they put that on him to carry. Ultimately, the other gospel writers tell us that they conscript uh, Simon, Simon of Cyrene, to come and carry it for him because Jesus. He just doesn't have the strength. And so they put it on him, bearing his own cross. He comes out to the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Hebrew, literally, it's Golgolet. Golgolet. Greek, cranion. Latin is Calvary. Calvary. All three whether it's Greek, Latin, or Hebrew, all three mean the same thing. They mean the skull. It is the place of the skull, and that rocky outcropping that resembles a skull still exists in Jerusalem today. You still can see it. And it's weathered with age of 2,000 years, but remarkably, you can still see that hillside that looks exactly like a big skull staring down at you. The place of the skull. You know, it reminds me that the greatest thinkers in the world end up with empty skulls. The most powerful leaders in the world end up with vacant craniums. And the most celebrated personalities, hollow boneheads, many of them before they die. What is fitting here is that this is the perfect place to die. And it's also the perfect place for the condemned to find life at Golgotha. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So they took Jesus out to be crucified at the skull. And note this, it says that he was crucified, verse 18, with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And that is important to note because Jesus now is hanging on a cross in the midst of sinful humanity. In the middle of these two sinners, Jesus is right there. Now, from a historical perspective, the central cross was always the one of greatest offense, the, one, the place of greatest shame. So if you had five people being crucified, you'd have one, two, three, four, and five in the middle, that's the really bad dude. That's the one who sinned the greatest. That's the one who is most deserving of death, and that's where they put Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 12 tells us, he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And that is shocking because he was numbered with the transgressors, not just the two men on the crosses. 
He was numbered with the transgressors. Everyone who's ever sinned, Jesus was with that lot. He took center stage for the transgressors. And it also says in Isaiah, he interceded for the transgressors, which you know he did right on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. But remarkably from the cross, Jesus interceded for all the transgressors when he said, Father, forgive them. He started praying for us at Calvary. He didn't wait till he got to heaven. He didn't wait till after the resurrection. He was praying for us on the cross. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Couple things to note. It was near the city. Golgotha was near the city. It was not on a hill far away. And that old hymn that, that we sometimes sing, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, is very romanticized, but two problems with it. It wasn't on a hill far away. It was right on a city thoroughfare. And secondly, it probably wasn't even on the hill. Listen, the cross would not have been up above the rocky outcropping, up on the hill of Golgotha. It was probably right at the base of it because that was where the highway departed Jerusalem and headed off to Damascus. That was the main thoroughfare coming in and out of the city. That's where they would have been crucifying criminals so that all the Jewish people in Jerusalem would see how serious Rome was with sedition and they would not put up with it. And these bodies would be hanging there as you came in, as you went out. The crucifixion took place, not on a hill far away, but right there on the main highway. Which is amazing. Because that location today, at the base of the skull, Golgotha, you know what's there? An Arab bus station. A noisy, greasy, acrid Palestinian bus station sits right there at the base of it. It's loud, it's obnoxious, buses coming in and out, honking, gasoline smell all in the air. It's right there. That's where the cross would have been. First time I saw that, it really offended me until I realized that's exactly the world Jesus came into to save. He came to save us in our noise and our clamor and our smells and our honking and our issues and all the stuff going on, our everyday life, gotta get from here to there and everywhere else. And Jesus died in that place. Matthew 27, verse 37 says that above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark 15, 26 says, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Luke 23, 38 says, there was an inscription above him that read, this is the king of the Jews. I'm like, well, which one is it? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the, because the, they're all different. And then you come to John, verse 21, and it tells us the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Verse 19, John says it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. So all four gospels mention the inscription. All four gospels tell us that the charge was nailed up above Jesus' head. That's how they did it, by the way. They put what the charge was of the hanging criminal. 
so that people would know that's what you're gonna be killed for if you do this. But all four inscriptions from all, all four gospels are slightly different. Why? John explains it to us. It's written in four languages, or three languages, sorry. Three languages. It was written, he tells us, in, in the Greek and in the Aramaic, or, or Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, verse 20. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So you got the three languages, no wonder the four gospels, it'll be slightly different. Well, it depends on which language they're translating. Are they translating it from the Greek or from the Latin or from the Hebrew? So it, it would come off slightly differently. Hebrew, the language of religion. Greek was the language of culture and education, the common language. Latin was the language of law and order, the language of Rome. And Pilate made sure that this inscription was written in all three so it could be clearly understood. Now understand this, Pilate meant this as a dig. He, he's, he's getting at, it's a personal dig against the Jews. He's, he's you know, been manipulated by them. He knows that, he hates it. He can't do anything about it because the crowd is getting upset. So he's just gotta cave in and give in to them, but he's gonna make it painful for them. And so he makes sure to write this up. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they didn't like it. But note this, you may not have heard this before. This is a prophecy fulfilled. I'm convinced of it. Because what Pilate did in writing, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, was he inadvertently fulfills Psalm 96, verse 10, which reads, and I quote, say among the goyim, which is Gentiles or nations, say among the nations, the Lord reigns as king. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns as king. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, in Hebrew, in Latin, in Greek. So all the nations could read it and know this is the king. Pilate didn't know what he was doing, but the psalmist prophesied. And so Pilate posted. Several years ago, um, we had a, a young woman come by the church several times. I haven't seen her in a long time. Um, she, I, and I don't, I don't wanna throw this woman under the bus. None of you probably know of her or would know her anyway, but she had a huge drug problem. She would show up, we found needles, sometimes in the bathroom when she would come in and ask, to, could I just use the restroom and, and come in and out? And, and she wasn't all there, and I don't know at times if she was high or if she was mentally unstable or what really was going on, but uh, she was very agitated one day. I heard, because I was up in my office, Brian Martin was serving with us at the time and Brian and Eva are downstairs and they're trying to slowly help this young woman and Eva will remember this story, trying to help this young woman out, out the door um, because she was not in her right mind and she gets out to the parking lot. Meanwhile, I, I hear this, so I come down the stairs and you know I'm standing about 10 feet behind them because I don't want to be seen. But um, she's out there by the parking lot. She's turning around, she's shouting back at us. Remember this, Eva? She's shouting Jesus is for everyone. She turned around and walked a little further and, 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 and we, were, we were trying to help her. We, we were saying, what can we, how can we help, you know? And she was just angry and agitated. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone, she said as she crossed the parking lot and headed out toward the woods and off the property. And I just remember that. I'll never forget that. Echoing in my head, Jesus is for everyone. And I'm like, yes, 
Yes, that's why we're here. Yes, Jesus is for everyone. She didn't even know what she was saying at the time. But you know what? She was absolutely right. Jesus is for everyone. He is for every ethnic, linguistic, racial, and cultural background on the earth. Revelation 5, 9 tells us they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, ethnic, linguistic, racial, and cultural. And Jesus died for the entire world. But you've got to receive the purchase, the redemption on his terms, not on yours. That's the deal. He died for everyone, but we come to him on his terms because he has the authority, he is the Lord. And that was the chief priestly problem. See, even here at surface level, they wanna change the sentence. Don't say, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. So on the surface, what's going on here? Well, they're saying, don't say that we think that. Say this is what he claimed, not what we think. And the problem was they refused to accept his terms of redemption, his terms of authority and rule. But you Bible students know there's something else amazing here. If we look more closely at this written in Hebrew, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, it likely read as follows, Yehoshua, Hanatsri, Vimelech, Hayudim. Let me say it again. Yehoshua, Hanatsri, Vimelech, Hayudim. Four words. Four words, and the first letter of each word is as follows. Yad, Cheh, Vav, and Cheh. Yah-ched-vav-cheh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Yahweh. Some thinking Jews looked up at the inscription in Hebrew and they saw the first letter of four words spelling out Yahweh. And they said, no way. It freaked them out. Yahweh, I am. Now, now I'll tell you right now, if you wanna Google this, some argue it. Some say, no, that's not how it would be spelled in Hebrew. Listen, the spelling is tricky. But as I said before, the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire by coincidence. And I am absolutely convinced that this is what they saw, that that was the correct spelling. And here we are, you know, 2,000 years later, and people want to undermine it and say that that's not the case. But I know that Hebrew is Yehoshua, Hanatsri, Vimelech, Hayudim. And those four letters spell out Yahweh. So I think that's exactly what they saw when they looked up and saw this writing. Pilate answered and said, what I have written, I have written. And you know what? It is not because Governor Pilate wrote this that the words bore any authority. Remember, he was under the authority of heaven. He was a man under authority, didn't even realize it. His authority came from above and it was written from before the foundation of the world. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 1, 17. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of your stay on earth, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Pilate put words on an inscription. And those words bear amazing authority. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In all the languages for all the world to read and to understand, my friends, Jesus is the enduring word. He is the word of our faith, spoken, written, alive, and returning the King of Kings from before the foundation of the world. We'll pause right there for tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just keep being drawn back to the importance of your authority over our lives. I selfishly pray for myself in the moment right here now, Lord, that I need to be under your authority fully. We as a fellowship need to rest in the comfort and the peace of your authority fully. I pray, Lord, that we would be given by the power of your spirit the ability to be uncompromising with the word of the truth and equally uncompromising with the offer of grace. Lord Jesus, grace and truth, we're told, were realized in you. And so I pray we would keep our eyes on you we will be focused on you, accepting absolutely your, Lord, your lordship in all aspects of our lives, that we might be a people of grace and of truth, a church that you continue to build in this world until the day that you call us home. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice, and we accept your authority tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.